Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome to Inside the Hive. This is your co-host, Joe Hagan. I've got two terrific guests on this week, taking us right into the molten core of our news cycle. First off, James Carville, the legendary Democratic strategist and talking head, takes us into the midterms, state by state, blow by blow, uh, what's going on and where is it going? Whether it's J.D. Vance and Tim Ryan running for Senate in Ohio and brawling it out on TV this week, or Ron DeSantis versus Charlie Crist after this hurricane uh, may have changed the dynamic in Florida. James Carville has opinions, and he's bringing them to Inside the Hive. Secondly, Narges Bajoli. She is a professor at John Hopkins. She's written an article for The Hive about what's going on in Iran after the death of Masa Amini. Uh, a 22-year-old woman who was killed in police custody in Iran for wearing her hijab incorrectly, thus sparking a women's revolution. Maybe you've seen some of it on your social media or on cable, but four weeks in, it's still going on. Where is it going? What does it mean? What are the implications globally uh, for that uprising? And how is it happening? So Narges Bajoli is going to take us into that and analyze it for us. She's a wonderful guest. She's here with our own Hive editor, Tara Golshin, and together um, they really uh, bring some insight into that important story. So here we go. Let's get into it. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from. Whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce my guest, James Carville. Hi, James. Well, thank you very much. It's, uh, I'm reading the hive, and it's good, fun, you know? Yeah, we try to keep it lively and try to stay on top of it. Um, so uh, the other day, uh, I was looking at uh, Bernie Sanders made a video, and, and he was describing his sort of take on the state of things. And he said that old, uh, that old saw that you hear every go-round, the most important election of our lifetimes— you know, uh, I, I think I heard that going back to the Mitt Romney versus Barack Obama uh, election, but there's plenty of cause to believe that things are at a precipice once again. But uh, what's your take? 
Well, yeah, it's, it's every election. Here we stand. We can do no other. We stand on the precipice. We must choose, you know, prosperity and death. You know, as for me, I'll take prosperity in case anybody wants to know. Uh, actually, uh, he may be right. And it was just a piece this morning I got up, and uh, I uh, might mispronounce his name if I do. I apologize. He's a conservative, but I've always found him to be pretty smart. He's uh, Ramesh Pranu, yep. who basically says the same thing, that, if the, the conservatives and Republicans lose the House and the Senate, you know, and Democrats have 52 senators, you know, it can be really, really something. And the difference between that and them winning the House and nothing happening in their mind is really big. So Senate Sanders has his case being buttressed by, I think, Purdue is a writer for the National Reviews. Yeah, yeah, he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I might be more with these two guys than against them. Yeah, well— over the horizon is being promised to us uh, lots of things like, uh, you know, impeachment proceedings against Biden, uh, investigations of, of Merrick Garland, all kinds of like basically madcapped nonsense, you know, so there's plenty of uh, reason to get alarmed. But um, let's talk for a second about uh, this debate last night. As we sit here today, it's a Tuesday. Uh, last night we saw J.D. Vance and Tim Ryan of Ohio running for Senate there, and they were uh, whacking at each other last night. Did you catch it? I, I did. I mean, I saw good points of it. And Tim kicked his ass. Good. All yeah. over the place. Nobody yeah. can say that anymore. They think, well, you know, we covered the boxing match, and, well, one guy hit, landed a punch, and another guy landed a punch. Then one guy went down on the canvas, and then, he, then the guy came back and like, nothing happened. No, somebody's on the canvas, dude. Stop. Yeah. All right? Yeah. No, and this is much of the press. Just they, both siderism is just the most powerful drug that you can imagine. I mean, apparently that there, there, there's no methadone to, for people to get off of it. Yeah, right. And yeah. It, it it continues to the to this day. It I look a lot of my Democratic friends look for bad news. You got to understand that this is something the public. A lot of people don't say most of the Democratic, I don't know, what do you call commentary or or strategists, all of them have a bias toward negativism. Yeah. There was one poll that showed Patty Murray three up. And one of my friends I talked to, I said, the poll was in June. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But they just seek bad news. These are people that seek bad news. Yeah. I, I think it's because... 92, we had an inordinate amount of Jews and Catholics on the campaign, so there was an inherent bias toward bad news. <laughs> yeah. Well, and uh, yeah, dour predisposition of some kind. Well, uh, certainly that's true now as people try to uh, – negative news gets the most attention, and attention is the common denominator nowadays. But I'm looking at that race, Tim Ryan, J.D. Vance, really kind of interesting because you you had uh, Tim Ryan – trying to tie J.D. Vance very strongly to Trump and to extremism, to January 6th, saying, you know, Trump called you an ass kisser. And he basically said you were kissing his ass and and really nailed him to the wall on that. You did. And so my question is, you know, I think of Ohio as a very, uh, you know, it's a pretty conservative state. And Tim Ryan's been walking a very fine line. You know, he's keeping his distance from Biden while trying to show that he's going to be an independent uh, operator while also trying to keep, you know, Vance tied to this 
the base of the base, the most extreme part of it, right? Right. So when you analyze that, though, like um, how effective is it to tie somebody to Trump in a state where Trump is really popular? Well, who do you want him to talk to? He is tied to Trump. He wouldn't yeah. be there without Trump. And, yeah. and apparently, Tim has come to the conclusion that it's better to tie him to it, but he's, he was already there. I mean, yeah. J.D. Vance is the Trumpiest candidate that you can imagine. And, you know, there is a Senator Sherwood Brown from Ohio, and there is a model for Democrats to win in Ohio, and it's the Sherwood Brown, Tim Bryan model, right? right? And, and remember, the I don't hate the, the, the left of the Democratic Party in the person of Nina Turner couldn't couldn't lost a congressional primary in Cleveland by twenty points. Can, how many times did someone have to tell these people exit stage left or right or wherever you exit the stage from? I mean, yeah. my God! Yeah. I mean, let's let's get let's get this puppy across the finish line. Yeah. Another thing I observed, just looking at these two guys on a stage, I thought was really edifying. Right. Because uh, Tim Ryan made J.D. Vance. J.D. Vance has a beard, but he right. still looked like a boy to me. I don't know. There was like a boy. He, he did. He looked a little green uh, compared which, to Tim Ryan. You, let me go right to what you're trying to say. Yeah. Tim looked like he was from Ohio. J.D. Yeah. looked like he was from San Francisco, which is true. <laughs> by the way. That's exactly what, what the visual was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, it's a reminder how small things like that can be decisive or, or create an impression that lasts. Absolutely. In, in a race like if you win Ohio, you're going to win this thing by, you know, 25,000 votes. So it's a thousand yeah. small things are going to matter. Yeah, yeah. If Tim Ryan is, one of his strategies is to tie Vance to the extreme part of Trumpism, it's a question about what is the effectiveness of Trumpism in some of these races. You know, in Georgia and Arizona and some of these places, you'll recall that the Democrats, some there were some Democrats who um, whose strategy was to fund extreme candidates in the in the hopes that they would lose in the primary. You know about this. No, the Democrats fund them in hopes that they would win. Well, that they would win in the primaries and then lose the Democrats in the in the general. Right. You know, uh, let's talk about that just as a strategy. Do you think that that was smart politics? And do you think that that's going to prove effective as we look at these races like Herschel Walker, even people think he's like a gravity defying guy. It doesn't matter what you pin to him. There's certain people are going to pull that lever for him. So ask yourself a question. In a political campaign, what is the, the very thing that they're always trying to do? Win. Win. Okay. Yeah. Win. Yeah. That, that's what you're there for. That's it. Period. Okay. No, period. It, 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 there's no other reason for it to exist. Right? And so a campaign or a campaign committee will do whatever it perceives as legal and in their interest at the time. I think this was a smart move they made. Could it backfire? Yeah, could. It, in all of this elite you know, oh, my God, this is, like, terrible, and what has happened to our beautiful, lovely democracy? I don't know yeah. if you noticed it, but it's been under assault, and this is a very minor part of it. Yeah. So I guess what I'm trying to uh, get to is um, every poll you see that is even related to Trump or Trump-adjacent polls that continually show 33 to 38 percent 
of the electorate just sticks by Trump no matter what. It's like this rock that just sits there. It's like a pet rock of American politics. And you wonder, like, uh, it's all about can these candidates keep them excited and keep them motivated and come to the polls while also kind of grabbing for some kind of notional middle, right? Some voter who's has mixed feelings. Somehow could you have mixed feelings? I don't know about some of these candidates, but is that a a useful way of looking at it? Well, let's start with a couple of things. First of all, if you don't think that Mitch McConnell, and uh, I, I, for lack of a, something, I'll call it the Republican high command. Yeah. You think they want Trump more out there between nine election day, or they wish he would just go in the basement in Mar-a-Lago and stay there? What do you think is the right answer to that? Yeah, yeah. They want right? him gone. They just, want him just gone. Just use common sense, yeah. right? So I'm going to take, I've never done this before, but I'm, I'm going to take a few minutes and kind of explain what's going on in, in this, in every race you see. So you, you're at home, you draw a plus sign. Yeah. Right in the top quadrant of the plus sign, you put high propensity to vote, high propensity to vote for you. That's the east end of Cleveland. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Right. High propensity to vote, high propensity to vote against you. That's south southeast Ohio. Don't worry about those two. They 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 don't exist in the campaign's mind. The two that exist are in the the lower left quadrant would be low propensity to vote, high propensity to vote for you. All right. Yeah. On their side, it's low propensity to vote, high propensity to vote for you. Well, the way that they get people, the way that they figure they can do is they got to get these people out. Now, you got to get them out in a way because probably six or seven percent, you know, higher, but borderline true independent. So they're, they're trying to stoke their turnout. Then, same thing is going on on the Democratic side. And it's always a delicate dance to how you get more, the, the lower quadrant stimulated without turning off whatever independence you have. Or, conversely, in stoking up your lower quadrant, i.e. Tommy Tuberville, you yeah. might just stoke up the Democratic That's lower right. quadrant. Okay? Yeah. So, it, and it's all of, all of that is political, is simplified political yeah. strategy, but that is what is going on. And, yeah. the, the, and Trump historically has performed very well with low propensity to vote, high propensity to vote for you. Yeah. All right? Yeah. And that's... that's, well, that's, that's he, who he... That's what he did. He found those people. Absolutely. And pulled them out of the woodwork. Yeah. He couldn't even poll them. There were so many of them. Yeah. But they never were... He never got more than... He never, he never got even close to 50. And remember, if he's polling, a, you know, a highly fabled 35 or 38, that's kind of a shitty number. You yeah. don't want to go to post with... 37%. That's, that's right. not a good number in American politics. Yeah. So I don't think they want Trump front and center. And sometimes in politics, you got to figure out exactly what they don't want and do that. It's kind right. of that same. Well, that's what Tim Ryan did last night. He made a decision that people don't want to hear about Trump anymore. And this guy's a Trumper. Absolutely. And it put him right there. And, and the average person would say, well, Trump carried Ohio by eight. Eh? Yes, different circumstances, and these guys can't get J.D. Vance is not going to get that kind of loyalty from these Trump voters, right? I mean, he's just there's nothing to him. I mean, if you look at, he just goes from one fad to the next fad, right? And you know, and again, I go back to the we talked about earlier. 
you read the press accounts of the debate, and you say, well, this is not what I watched. This yeah. is no way. There was actually a fight. All right? You could call it what you want, but that was not a draw. Yeah. That was a TKO. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm it was sorry. brutal. Yeah. Well, you know, in the clips out of it, where, you know, if you just do it purely on like the uh, clips that you see on cable and Twitter, Tim Ryan, you know, flattened him because they were just so strong. That's a strong punch. That's how you want to fight. You're laying yeah. blows. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, this election is probably, you can't exactly call it a referendum on Trump, though there's always some element of it being a referendum on Trump just by how we're analyzing the outcome of it. But in his relative weakness or strength as an advocate. And you're saying Republicans want him gone, and I, I can imagine that being so. But now if you look at Georgia in the Herschel Walker situation, I'm thinking he's in flames, this guy, you know, under normal circumstances. But there's this sort of, you can go as low as you want and still retain some kind of support from that GOP, this current GOP. And that's, but is that how you analyze it? Do you think that he's been weakened or that that it's been ineffectual. Of course he's been weakened. I, I mean, and, and we just wait for some poll to show that he dropped 10 points overnight. That's yeah. not how it's going to happen. If you think he's not weak, look at how much effort they're putting in here and they're trying to get everybody to go into Georgia. The, the, you know how these evangelicals always say that God works in mysterious ways and he sends yes. messages. Well, Herschel Walker is a messenger to remind us of just the utter moral bankruptcy of the modern Republican Party. There could yeah. not be a, a, a more humble, simple, and effective vessel to say that you're not, your whole operation is nothing but a pack of hypocrites. Walker pays for an, an abortion born when he got pregnant in 2009. Well, I, I would have done the same thing. I don't find that. Yeah, of course, it's utterly hypocritical that he's now the great, most pro-life, religious person in the world. Yeah. And Marcus is one. How about having four kids by four different mothers that you pay no attention to and you continue to pay no attention to, and you tried to choke one of their mothers and put a gun to the head of the other mother? What, what is going to cause you, people, you to disrespect somebody? You have a friend that says, look, man, I got in trouble with, this, uh, with, with my girlfriend, and I helped I help to fate. Boy, or I got four kids spread around the country and I don't even know their names. Yeah. Right. And and and, and then they roll out Newt Gingrich. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. And, and and saying, well, Herschel's gonna be the most consequential senator senator of the 21st century because he has PTSD and mental illness. Well, <laughs> son of a bitch. So you got a guy on a ledge, and they send a psychiatrist to try to talk him off the ledge. And he says, man, yeah. no, you don't want to do this. He says, oh, no, I can fly. I'm seeing things. And he says, no, yeah. go on the ledge. He says, what are you going to do for me? We'll give you a seat in the United States Senate. Yeah. That's not how much sense that makes. Yeah. Now they're saying mental illness in itself. It, of course, I feel something. You cannot tell me that anybody 60 years old would trade brains with Herschel Walker. Because you just wouldn't. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect. 
her father the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically, I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, every time something like this happens, like with the Herschel Walker thing, it's a really interesting case because it's like, it's asking the right wing and its, and its loyalists, it's testing the, you know, the bottom. Right. You know, they, right. they say in Wall Street, let's test the bottom, you know, right. as a, <laughs> when you're doing trading, stock trading. Well, they're testing the bottom in it. And I'm just it, like, this is an it's, interesting testimony. Walk any more to bottom than Doug Mastriano? Is Herschel Walk any more to bottom than Blake Masters? Are you shitting me? They're all on the bottom. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah, I, I, I mean, Blake Masters is now questioning whether we should have gotten involved in World War II. <laughs> it understand. But fans, they're pulling for, for Putin. Yeah. Pulling for Putin. So the, the, the Herschel Walker is not alone at the bottom. No. He's got a lot of company down there. Yeah. Yeah. A margin, oh, God, don't even start it how many people have. That, that's the fullest house in the world is the bottom of the Republican Party. Yeah. Well, it's like, it's interesting. I'm trying to have a, find a takeaway from it in terms of who they are appealing to and what is the political kind of mind behind, like, let's test the parameters of what has been traditionally called right <laughs> in all these cases. I mean, questioning World War II, making, you know, vaguely anti-Semitic comments and showing all your biases, being more bald about it, be more, you know, being more kind of like frontally bad or what we've considered wrong in the past and somehow trying to figure out I'm trying to figure out, like, are they doing this uh, because they think there's some untapped, more untapped voters down there who are like, if we can find the more racist, we can get them to get to the polls. I well, don't, you know, or is it just purely like entertainment spectacle is what gets them to the polls? They just want noise. All right. So what they're faced with is that sort of classic thing you've heard all of your life. I can't live with her. I can't live without her. All right. They don't have any choice but to go down the Trumpist line because they look at they look up out there and they see every Republican that's lost a race. They didn't do that. This they're expressing the manifest will of the Republican voter. And if you don't understand that, if you don't understand that the problem in the country is not so much Republican politicians but Republican voters, you, you, you're missing the larger point. They, these Republican politicians have no choice other than to toe the Trump line because if they don't, they're gone. Yeah. So I'll take the chance that I might die over the certainty that I will die. <laughs> and it really um, lays bare the zero-sum cynicism. Yeah, the, the problem the Republicans have is they have very low-quality voters. You know, Lester Maddox, who was a 
governor of Georgia, is racist, but, but it's not at all, famously said the problem with the Georgia prisons is the quality of the inmate. <laughs> you just can't get a good, you know, the, yeah. the problem with the Republican Party is the quality of the people that vote in their primaries. Yeah, yeah. The internal logic of the whole thing, of course, and this is something that Democrats are bringing up a lot in the races this this fall, is this idea that democracy is going to implode if you let these guys get their hands back on the lever. And that, you know, the January 6th committee thing was a big uh, signal flashpoint for all of that. How worried are you about something like that? Do you think that's an effective line of uh, attack? Well, I don't, you know, I see some of the polling puts democracy as one of the biggest issues in the campaign. So it it, it, it obviously, it, it, yes, they obviously did try to destroy it. Look at who they support. The two countries they love the most is Saudi Arabia and Russia. Boy, that's yeah. too far from functioning democracies, isn't it? They don't yeah. care about that. You know, I, Mike Lee said democracy is not the end here. You had this guy, Jim Marchant, uh, from Nevada, running for secretary of state on stage with Trump this, this said, week. We're last... What's that? He said, we're going to win. Doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah he said, we're going we're gonna to take over all the, all the secretaries of state positions around the country, and we're going to basically rig the election in 2024. He says it right on stage, standing next to Trump. I've got news for you. Among yeah. most Republicans, that's yeah. a very popular stand. <laughs> well, exactly. Well, that's what scares me, yeah. Yeah, it should. It, it gives much to be afraid about. Yeah. You know, you're a, you're a physician of our political condition, okay? I'm, I'm giving you that, uh, that title right now. What's the health of Trumpism in terms of this race and the, and the effectiveness of it in bringing out voters and winning in these elections? Well, you know, they're hoping that the combination between p- people being turned off by and cost of living and crime will make people make a decision or go along with that. And, and we got the perfect people in place. We could win this and really get our own people in there because presidential approval is so low, direction of the country is so low that we have a historic chance to seize power. And we should take it and take it with, with people that, that will do our bidding for us. And it may work. I, look, it all depends on, you know, when Dobbs came out, there was this giant resistance. And I, I was in Kansas. I think I was only in there so Democrat to go there. And their bet is, just not, I'm not saying this is what I think, this is their bet that women have a short attention span. And yeah, they get stoked up for a couple of months and then they'll go back to move furniture. And so if we win on election day, it will be that the women of America did not move furniture, but went out and vote. If we lose, well, there's a lot of move furniture in this country. Well, that's okay. That was my next question is abortion. How powerful of a moving force will it be in this coming election? I saw an article just last week saying, you know, uh, did the uh, Democrats like strike too early or did they, you know, is it is the energy already bleeding out of that? You know, guy in my district won on it this summer, Pat Ryan. Uh, but, you know, the question is, is it do people, you know, listen, as you know, the closer we get to election day, there's going to be alarm, fire alarms going off all over the place and it may therefore get women to the polls again because Democrats will remind them. But, you know, are you concerned about it? Yeah, of course I'm concerned. You, you couldn't be in an environment, you know, I see five polls a day and they're all 48-48. Yeah. 
right? I'm concerned, but, you know, it, the idea that here you have an election with wrong track of the country, 65% presidential approval, 41. Yeah. All right. That's a guaranteed landslide. Why has this electorate been resisting this and resisting it hard? That's the question hmm. that, that, that we should be asking ourselves. Expand on that for a minute. Like, uh, you mean resi- resisting with the obvious, which would be Republicans should be winning all over? Anybody with a marginal familiarity with off year elections in the United States, and you said, okay, this is the deal. The president has an approval rating on 538 of 41.3. Uh, the wrong track, right track number in the United States is 25, right track, 65, wrong track. All right. Inflation rate is 8%. Predict the outcome. Yeah. 55, 60 House seats, four Senate seats. That's not happening yet. And so the question is, if we expect a planet to be in a certain orbit, and it's not, it's a pretty pretty big observation that you're trying to make. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like the electorate saying, Democrats, give us a reason not to do this, <laughs> you know? I mean, right. you know. And, 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 and they're saying, and, and but the, the Democrats can't, you know, there's so much you can accomplish in four weeks. I, I think that the whole effort between nine election day is to drive their, their brand down. Because, you see, if, if you're sitting here and say, I think things are wrong track country. I think Biden's too old. I'm sick. You know what I mean? I don't like it. I think I've done only, the only power I have is voting, is to send a message to these guys, and therefore I'm going to vote the end party out, and maybe that'll get somebody's attention. That is not a – it's a pretty easy thing to see, right? Yeah. Because I got to be – and the thing is, what the hell you got to lose? And the Democratic answer should be, and to some extent is, and needs to be more, a lot. Yeah. A lot. Right. You don't you don't have the luxury of saying, well, I don't particularly like things. I think I'll just send the bastards a, a message. Yeah. The bastards that are going to get the message is Blake Masters and Herschel Walker and Tommy Tuberville and Margie Taylor Greene and J.D. Vance yeah. and Doug Mastriano and Dr. Eyes and you want me to go on and on and Adam Laxalt. So you got to be sure of it. Don't you touch that thing because you're getting ready to do some it's not it's not yours to just give away. And they try to get you to they want you to do that so you you're distracted from what jackasses they are. Yeah. Well, meanwhile, you've got Joe Biden himself trying to change the temperature of that reaction as well. And he's been coming out of he's been much more out in the open in the last couple of months, and generally to the positive. I've been surprised, I'll say. I thought maybe he was just staying out of the limelight all year, like rope doping, and then he comes out of the woodwork. I mean, obviously, the big inflection point was he passed the Inflation Reduction Act or whatever. But, um, you know, that's when he kind of burst out and was suddenly on the – came out of the hidey hole. So if he comes out, it's got to be like Inflation Reduction Act. All right. I think that the marijuana thing, I don't know how much it will help, but clearly they're trying to get some younger voters and uh, – but you stop and you think about it. Biden's suppressor, but Trump looms he- more heavily on this yeah. election 
than Biden does. And and that's what's driving Mitch McConnell. The Mitch McConnell world is crazy. Can't we get this guy away and put in Trump's not to let anybody be center stage, which just gives us a chance where we shouldn't have a chance. Yeah. Well, don't you find it interesting, though, that guys like um, we well, got DeSantis, Youngkin, Pence and these. There is a sense that Trump is weakened right now, that they're testing his viability out there. They wouldn't test it if he was totally strong. Uh, they see what I see. 35 to 38 is not a winning number. Yeah. There's just nothing you can do about it. Yeah. You're right. He's weakened some. And if you, you know, a lot of people would like to move on from Trump, but I don't think Trump wants to move on from Trump. Right. And he retains enough that they got to be careful. It's not so much that it's overwhelming, but it's enough that you got to have these people. And this is a difficult airplane for them to land. Yeah. You mentioned all those uh, Republicans, Dr. Oz, Blake Masters, and all these different races. What are the races you looking at as like that are really uh, hot combat for you right now? The one that I think that everybody is missing that's really critical, you know, really tipping point state, I think, is North Carolina. And for some reason, it's considered to be a second-tier Democratic pickup. I don't buy that at all. Yeah. I mean, I don't think we're any worse than 50-50. And it's critical because there's control of the state Supreme Court there. And the other one that, if you look at the poll in Florida, seems to be a little closer than people would expect. And if you get that thing really close, the the storm is going to have, could have an adverse effect in Mm -hmm. the South Florida, which is a pretty Republican part of the state, but we'll see. Yeah. Do you, what do you think of Charlie Crist? Well, I mean, I'll be honest with you. I was for Nikki Freed yeah. in the primary. Uh, but, I mean, he was a former governor. He's totally experienced and can, you know, step in. How exciting Charlie Chris is right now, I'm kind of doubtful. But he certainly is, a, by any stretch of imagination, uh, ready to be governor. And he's a kind of unifying guy and is anything but what DeSantis is. Yeah. Well, and uh, he may be presenting himself as like a uh, Biden-esque center-middle guy in a time when DeSantis can seem uh, a little too freakish for some people. Yeah, I mean, the only problem that Charlie Chris has, he he just gets lost in the crowd. Yeah. Um, So you were talking about the races you're looking at, North Carolina, Florida. I think that governor's race in Florida got more interesting, you know, because of the hurricane, but... Even before that, I remember there was a poll where Chris was, had popped up for a minute. And it's not expected. I mean, I, I have to say earlier in the summer, I was thinking, well, that's just a – DeSantis is going to roll him no problem because that just seemed like the direction things were going. And yet again, uh, you know, as, as the title of uh, our friend Liz Smith, uh, uh, her book, uh, Any Given Tuesday, Anything's Possible and Anything Can Happen. Yeah, it's, it's – uh, and DeSantis has really this, – this, Storm has exposed a lot, all right? And, and, and let's, let, let's just think of the many things exposed. The first thing is, do you know what Florida needs more than anything else in the world right now? Hmm. I do. Immigrants. <laughs> okay, who is going to? I'm sitting here in South Mississippi, South Louisiana. Let me tell you who rebuilt after Katrina. 
it wasn't the good, determined, optimistic people of, of South Louisiana and New Orleans. It was immigrants. And right yeah. now, they're coming in, guess what? No questions asked. No stunts. No Martha's Vineyard stuff. You know, I, I fully expect when I go from here to Florida, which is right on I-10, that there will be a huge billboard. You are entering Florida. Yeah. Uh, you know, Ron DeSantis, the government, we are a sanctuary state. <laughs> no, no questions. Yeah. And south, okay? Yeah. That, 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 that exposed it in a way that you could not imagine. And that storm, and if you look at the track of it, it goes over western Cuba, which is pretty mountainous. It, it doesn't fall apart, but it weakens. And it's out in the Gulf of maybe 150 miles, and it's 150-mile-an-hour wind because it's over 87-degree water. Suppose we wouldn't have had that high-pressure ridge along the northern Gulf of Mexico. If that thing would have come to the northern Gulf, it would have been a 205-mile-an-hour wind if it spent that much time over water that long. Yep. So you talk about a, a, a wake-up call. This is a wake-up call on any number of things. And then where is DeSantis vulnerable? Oh, I can tell you, the evacuation order. So any anybody that knows anything about hurricane looks at southwest Florida and goes, shit, there's only two ways to get out of here. You got the interstate, takes you to Tampa, all right? Then you got the... Kamiami Trail or Balligate Alley or whatever yeah. two main roads road, road to take. So you tell a metropolitan area of a million and a half people 21 hours before the storm hits to evacuate, well, guess yeah. what? They're not going to be able to get out of there. No way, yeah. shape, or form. And, and all of this nonsense about, well, people thought it was going to Tampa. Well, even if it went to Tampa, you were going to have severe flooding in those places because they were on the right side of the storm. It It, it is a... The only good that this storm did anybody is it just exposed hypocrisy left and right. That's right. So, you know, in a hypothetical situation, you're uh, advising Charlie Chris, let's make an ad. What what would you say? I, I, I would say one of the traditionally one of the awesome responsibilities to be governor of Florida is frankly to deal with hurricanes. This is a phenomenon that is hardly new. Yeah. And what preparation did we have? What, how, who did he call from the University of Miami, which has one of the best hurricane labs in the world, you know, University of Florida? Yeah. He, he was too busy trying to give some kind of ideological purity test to college professors as opposed to seeking expertise. You know, so I, I would say that, that you know, if you, you want to talk about when you run for governor of Florida, because I've been there. Yeah. This, this is job number one. Yeah. Deal right. with this because they're coming. Right. Well, he's trying to make job number one to uh, torture teachers and make sure that they, uh, you know. Well, he, you don't have to worry, as I said on TV. He, he can suspend the toilet patrol because none of the toilets work. <laughs> <laughs> if you find a working toilet and it's next to a transgender person, you don't yeah. give a shit. Yeah. You want shit. It's not that other person. It's, it, yeah, the toilet patrol, when they all backed up, forget about it. Yeah. It's a waste of time. Good, good point. So, uh, yeah, well, Charlie Christ, if you're listening, there it is for yep. you on, on a platter. One. Yeah. Hey, uh, James Carville, thanks for coming on Inside the Hive. All right. You know, uh, I feel like this was a good time to download some uh, 
perspective and wisdom. I don't know. Uh, you know, and uh, certainly um, makes the road to November a little bit clearer. And uh, that's what we need right now. So thanks so much. All right, man. Take care. So we're back. Uh, We published a story about what's going on in Iran. It's called Woman, Life, Freedom. Iran's protests are a rebellion for bodily autonomy. It was written by Narges Pajoli. She's a professor at John Hopkins, and we brought her on today because we need to talk about this. And uh, she was edited by our dear uh, friend and Hive colleague, senior editor Tara Golshin. And we have them both on here today to explore what's been going on, to take us up to date uh, on what's an ongoing and very important story and really not getting enough press. You know, there's a lot going on in this country and around the world, and it's hard to get people's attention above the fold. Uh, But what's going on in Iran is extremely important, and it has global implications. And that's exactly what the story was about uh, that Nargis Pajoli wrote. So I want to welcome both of these guests on here today, Nargis and Tara. Hello. Hello. Hi. I will admit that, uh, you know, I myself am trying to just keep up with this story and understand what it's about. But the broad outline of it is, is that there was a Kurdish Iranian woman, uh, Masa Amini, who died in custody when the morality police flagged her down for apparently wearing her hijab improperly. Do we know how she died in custody? There are competing sort of narratives out there. The narrative that is coming from uh, her family and um, folks who, and journalists and and eyewitnesses was that she was uh, most likely beaten. Her head was slammed uh, once she was taken in by the morality police. The official story from uh, the, you know, the official autopsy that they just released a couple of days ago, they said that she had pre-existing conditions, although a lot of physicians are within Iran are taking a lot of, um, they're critiquing that official autopsy quite heavily. Yeah. Well, what the bottom line is, her death has had a huge impact in that country. Women have been rising up. We've seen the videos. The hardline uh, leader of Iran uh, Ibrahim Raisi, you know, has made it more difficult for women in that country since he came into power. Is that right? Um, well, things have been difficult in Iran for decades when it comes to women. But um, as far as the the compulsory hijab rules and implementation, women have been um, in every sort of everyday resistance a- about these compulsory hijab and, and putting their veils further and further back. But when he became president a little bit over a year ago, he um, comes from a very traditional and conservative religious sector of the political establishment. And he um, wanted, he brought back again in full force the morality police more than they were on the streets before. So he's made this a, a, you know, a bigger issue over the past year um, once again. It sort of ebbs and flows. And is he sort of like a populist in his, you know, in the in whatever sort of variations of politics go on there? Um, I mean, does he have any analog in Western politics? 
He's kind of like a wannabe populist. He's not very good at being a populist either. The reason he became president um, last in 2021 was essentially they rigged the political field. So there was no one else but him. But it's mm. not, I mean, he's not like Ahmadinejad, who used to be the president of Iran, who, you know, you could you could really talk about him as a populist. But Raisi is not, he, he wants to be one, but he's not really that either. Mm. And Tara, did you have something you wanted to say? Well, I wanted to go back to your question about whether or not this is like new rules being implemented. Something that Nagus wrote about that I thought was very interesting is that there are many laws on the books that that limit women's rights in Iran. Um, but I think over the decades, the hijab and the enforcement of hijab and how um, arbitrarily and severely it in, is enforced is something that has been a daily fear among women in Iran and is something that has kind of become a symbol of of this power over them. So I think that uh, in it of itself kind of speaks to this moment, um, how this this has been a long standing rule that obviously the implementation of the morality police has ebbed and flowed, but the policing of, of how women dress and how they act in public, I think that um, has has been a constant for, for women in Iran. Yeah. And was ha- before um, this latest wave, was there a feeling there that things might be going in a better direction and then this hammer came down or was it just had been, you know, was there some ebb and flow to it based on who's in, in power? Because I do also know that there seems to be a class element here because don't women in certain areas of Tehran don't have to go by these strictures or don't adhere to them and then in other areas they do. Can you explain that to me? So in certain places of either Tehran or other major cities in Iran, women will take more liberties and and wear it less or not wear it as as strictly. But even there, it can be enforced at any point. So it's the class element to this is is definitely there, but that's also contributing to this and why it makes this sort of uprising different than ones in the past is because uh, we're starting to see, or we have seen over the past three going into four weeks now, sort of cross-class uprising, which makes this very different than, than things in the past. So the, the class element is important, but the class element also is something that even women who live in areas where the community isn't as strict about the hijab or their or policing is not as strict, they know that it can be implemented at any point, which makes, you know, it goes back to what Tata is saying. It's it's the ebb and flow of this that makes it so, um, that, that makes women and young people, because the morality police, they focus on women's hijab, but they also focus on anything that they deem, quote unquote, improper. Uh, and that sort of, so many people in, in Iranian society have had some kind of interaction with the morality police, which is, again, one of the reasons that even though the central element of this is, is against the compulsory hijab, men and women have been rising up in these protests because it's a it's an issue that sort of, encap- everyone is somehow involved in, in wanting to protest this police force. That's interesting. I mean, uh, four weeks. I, I, I've been thinking about this. How do you keep something like that going? I mean, and what has been their reaction? I mean, is this a daily uprising? There are signs of it every day of the week? Or is it popping up here and there? And what is it like for them, like whack-a-mole, they're trying to constantly put it down? How have they been reacting to it? And how is it retaining its momentum inside the country? Yes, it's been going on. Um, there, there are multiple ways in which folks are m- maintaining the momentum. 
Well, one of it before the authorities shut down the internet pretty severely was that a lot of the communication was happening online. As the internet has gone down, uh, younger folks have been communicating when they've been playing video games with one another. So different forms of, uh, especially in the Gen Z generation. Uh, but also Iranians are very adept at, um, you know, they've been playing this cat and mouse game with the authorities for 40 years. And so, and this is not the first time that the authorities have shut down the internet either in response to protests. Um, so people have, they spray paint on walls and they graffiti, like when the next protest is going to be. They talk to each other. People have, people call each other's landlines and they tell each other. So um, it today was fairly uh, uh, calm, but there's been a big call for people to come back out onto the streets tomorrow. So this is also one of the things that I'm seeing a lot here is one is the it's it's leaderless. In the set, and that is, I think, very strategic because the Islamic Republic has gone after leaders of previous uh, protest movements in Iran. Yeah. Um, but then also, uh, it allows for dynamism in these protests, and people know that this is a, a struggle that they are involved in that will need momentum over the long term. And so, there will be bursts of activity for a few days. Then people will retreat and they'll go back to their daily lives, and then they immediately put out a call and say, this day, this week, or this day, next week, everyone come back onto the streets again. Um, so they understand that this is a, 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 a movement that, that requires um, uh, sort of consistency and momentum into the longer term. When did the internet get shut down? Was it fairly quickly into the movement? Yes, it was fairly quickly. I mean, that's. it seems like whenever something like this bubbles up to the surface, that's one of the first tools the government uses to, to shut down community building, organizing, uh, any types of information getting out there. It's actually something, I guess, you, you studied this very extensively um, on how even the Iranian government at first tried to use these new media platforms to kind of uh, get a hold of the young generation. I'm curious what you think about how that has evolved now to how young people are using these platforms in defiance of of the government and and how that is how that is playing a role in in what is being put out there and what we are seeing abroad. So yeah, you know, Iran's green movement in 2009 was it can be is considered uh, as one of the first sort of online mass movements that we saw and hashtag Iran election, which became the viral hashtag of that moment. What is the first hashtag movement that we have in sort of internet history. And so Iranians have been very used to, and especially Iranian activists have been very used to being able to use internet for these sorts of purposes. At that time, the Islamic Republic had to play catch up. So they weren't really paying it. They were paying attention to the, to the internet for like cybersecurity reasons from outside, but they weren't really necessarily paying attention for inside. And then they had to, they, they really focused, shifted their focus to starting to control the population inside through the internet and then utilizing these platforms to put their own messages out and try to um, sideline the other messages. Uh, we also see that in a lot of places around the world where states play catch up to how activists and, and folks on the ground use social media. Um, and today they've lost that narrative war pretty harshly. And, um, you know, I, I do study a lot of the folks who are on the pro-regime side, and I'm seeing them really struggling with losing the narrative over this and are they're they're beginning huge blame games amongst each other and lots of factionalism even within the conservative forces around this. Um, so this is something that I think in Iran, but also all around the world, we're seeing a lot between activists and states about um, 
both using these internet tools and these platforms, but then also knowing that they're pretty amazing tools for surveillance actually at the hands of the state. And so this is a, a, a real cat and mouse game we, we see kind of anywhere that we're looking where social uprisings are happening and then the tools of the internet are being used. Yeah. Well, you you write really beautifully in your piece in Vanity Fair that everybody should go read Woman, Life, Freedom. And by the way, that quote, Woman, Life, Freedom, this is sort of like the rallying cry of this movement around the hashtag Masa Amini event. And uh, you write really beautifully about how its connection to all the other movements going on around the world that have to do with women's rights. And I think it's been observed, but I'll observe it again here that uh, with the rise of populist uh, leaders and governments around the world, there's always a conversed repression of women's rights. It's sort of like a very common uh, aspect of right-wing uh, politics. We're seeing it here in the country. We're seeing it in Florida, of all places, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I just want to read a quote from your piece, uh, if I may. Uh, Global supporters link the uprisings in Iran with their own fights, including restrictions on reproductive rights, the curtailing of trans rights, the banning of books and schools on gender and sexuality studies, and the forceful unveiling of women who choose to veil. For millions of women and young people around the world, the threat or reality of living under increasingly stringent gender laws has created the urgency of a global fight against patriarchal control over bodies. And, and I think that's um, – I'm, I'd be curious, like, do the people inside Iran who are fighting this feel – the support from outside the country, do they know that they have sort of the backing of like, you know, every other movement around uh, the world? Yeah, the backing and the solidarity statements mean so much because as the internet has been shut down, um, first of all, a lot of Iranians have VPNs on their phones. So they have ways of bypassing the state's restrictions over the internet and getting online. But also, they many, many, many people in Iran have satellite television. And so they are tuned in to satellite TV, which then broadcasts these messages of solidarity back into Iran. So they mean a lot because it shows the global nature of what their fight is for. And it also shows them that they're not alone in this fight. Um, and they've been very, um, especially the women at the helm of this, of these uprisings have been very sort of clear about this being about the right to choose because, and you have a lot of pictures surfacing of uh, women wearing the full body uh, veil standing next to and hand in hand with a woman who was unveiled. Uh, so, mm. you know, they're linking this to not about a question of religion. This is not about Islam. This is not about religion, but it's a question of conservative movements that they predicate their power on the subjugation, first and foremost, of women and queer people. And this is something that we see happening all over the world and in, in an increasing fashion. And it's no surprise to me that Iranian women are at the forefront of a very sort of militant feminist movement that's on the front lines of these global wars against um, against these gender laws uh, because they've been experiencing it for 40 years. So what we see on the streets today is quite, you know, it's quite amazing to see, but uh, it's, you know, as Toto knows, as anyone who's either been to Iran or who has covered Iran knows, what we're seeing is a manifestation in a collective form of, of an everyday resistance that women in Iran, you know, enact every single day against these laws. It, the difference today is that we're seeing it in a, in a massive level and that men are fighting alongside women, which I think makes this also quite inspiring for a lot of people around the world because they're seeing that 
a fight for gender equality and a fight against patriarchy is not just a fight that women have to fight, but it's a fight that everyone needs to fight because these kinds of laws and these kinds of powers restrict all of us. They just, the ground zero are the women, are the bodies of women and, and queer folks, but, but actually it ends up restricting all of us and all of our rights and freedoms. Yeah. It's remarkable how this connects to just my previous guest, James Carville, like this, you know, veteran political guy talking about these midterms and about, you know, whether women are going to vote on abortion in the midterms. And it's kind of shocking that we're talking about Iran and we think of this very repressive regime and uh, it's not in another country far away. You know, Mm -hmm. it's a global thing. It's happening here too. And a lot of this, as you write in your piece, has to do partly with this younger generation, Gen Z, millennials, they're sort of driving this thing. And I wonder what they wake up every morning thinking is the long-term goal here. What can actually change? What can, I mean, do you, does it mean a regime change in Iran or can they get this country to moderate some of this because they don't want more of this happening because it's going to turn them into even more of a militant state if they're fighting off like a revolutionary uh, movement? Like what, what do people think could end up happening here or what do they want to happen? Um, so there are, the central slogan is women, life, freedom, but alongside women, life, freedom, there are a lot of slogans about, uh, wanting to, uh, move past the Islamic Republic or wanting to undo the Islamic Republic as a, as a political entity. What that means going forward is, hard to tell because part of it depends on do other movements that have been protesting against the states, like um, the workers' movement or uh, teachers' movements, do they join in? Um, do they begin to strike? If that begins to happen, and there's been some inklings of that uh, potentially happening over the last day or two, if that begins to happen, this movement takes on, it just, it, it takes on a, a whole new dimension, right? Because it becomes much more widespread the Islamic Republic is a state that came about through a revolution, so a popular revolution. So they understand what it means when they're, when, and this is why they've been so, unfortunately, effective at repressing previous movements in the past is because they pay attention to when a particular movement can turn into a big problem for them. This has the potential for that because this is not only bringing together people from all walks of life um, who may or may not even be political per se, because it's a, it's a question about uh, women's rights and women's freedoms. But if the other movements that have been a thorn in the side over the past few years, like labor rights, like teachers' rights, like you know all of these other things, if they begin to strike and they begin to join, this turns into a much, much bigger problem for the state. Um, if not, then... Um, then we have to see. But it seems like, at least at the moment, uh, there's a lot of effort being made to link up these different movements to the state. Now, the other thing that we're seeing a lot of is that uh, young people are not, they're not backing down. So the state has been quite repressive in, in responding to this. It's killed a lot of young people. It's it's putting police forces into, because school girls and school boys have now joined in too, in elementary schools, middle schools, and high schools. They're putting a lot of riot police in front of the schools. It's not so far, we haven't seen it shot. You know, the students are still very much engaged in this. Um, so it's a very dynamic situation on the ground. But one of the things that I'm seeing a lot of from the state side, from like the pro-regime folks, is that they're starting to really critique one another. So it's it's showing that what they're up against is different than before. This is not something that even their own supporters 
can support repressing because it's young kids in the streets. And these are kids that could be their own children. And Masa Amini looks like many of the pro-regime daughters, right? And so because of the fact that many of their daughters don't want to veil as strictly anymore either. So this is an issue that really is a difficult one for them to put the genie back in the bottle for. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's been, I think as, well, at least for me as an Iranian-American looking back, you always, you're always looking for like the moments that is this time different. And we've seen over the last years and months, these rolling workers' protests, You've seen kind of all of these moments up below the surface, and then they they go back down. And and now when we're watching like headlines coming out that the oil workers are are going to go and strike in solidarity, that whether as Nagas is saying, teachers are going to join, really young teenagers and elementary school kids who were clearly not alive 40 years ago to experience how we got to this point, uh, it does feel remarkably different. And it does feel like a retelling of the history of how how we got, of how revolution started in Iran too, um, with with a generation that didn't live through that, right? So uh, I think that that has been the most powerful to watch, um, whether or not there is regime change. Um, the lead up this time does feel different. Yeah. You know, at the very least, planting seeds for whatever the future holds. When future generations come into power, this will be in their history books. This is going to be in their minds. This is going to be their personal experience of, you know, a a generational shift. Yeah. And, you know, we can't determine, like, as social scientists, we can't see what happens in the future and and how how these things develop. But exactly as you're saying, the really important thing about this moment, I think both internally to Iran, but also uh, globally, is that we now have representation and, like, visual symbols of women resisting patriarchal power on a daily basis. And that gives women themselves, women and girls in Iran and others, the ability to say we will no longer comply. And it also plants the seed in all of us watching around the world as we're experiencing these increase in populist movements and conservative movements. Also, it plants the seed for us of what it looks like to say, I will not comply with your laws that that I deem unjust. Yeah. Um, Nargis Bajoli, I have one last question for you. Um, I want to get the best, uh, most up-to-date, accurate information I can about what's going on in Iran and what's going on with this movement. Where do you go? Where, where do you seek information? I mean, maybe you probably, you, you may know people in Iran who can give you firsthand accounts of things, but if I'm just out here in the news world, who should I follow? I think one of the things that folks can follow is um, BBC Persian uh, on Instagram, especially puts out a lot of videos of what's coming in. Um, And then uh, there are now actually um, a few handles. People need to go on Instagram. This is where this is happening. Instagram or TikTok, really. It's not it's not even on Twitter because, again, it's youth led, Uh as Tara was mentioning. So Instagram and TikTok are where this is going on. There are some handles there. If you uh, type in women, life, freedom, you'll see a bunch of things that come up, especially around a lot of artists. This has been a very art-driven and visual movement. So our artists are very heavily involved in creating visuals around this. But as far as news sources are concerned, the ones that are following this very closely are B- is BBC Persian from an outside perspective. Well, that's very helpful. And um, for oldsters like me, I can count on my teenagers to guide me to the revolution, which I think is like a perfect uh, role for uh, teenage girls to uh, in America 
to uh, connect with the sisterhood in Iran. So thank you so much for um, bringing us up to date and educating us on this uh, situation, which, as you say, is very dynamic and is going to have long-term implications. Tara Gulshan, thank you for coming on and uh, holding my hand through this. And uh, we will have you back at a later date and hopefully be in a better place uh, for everybody. So thank you so much. Thanks. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th.